just want to say that we had um, another speaker who unfortunately couldn't make it today, um, Dr. Nadal Silman. Um, he's a has 15 years experience uh, in international law and human rights and is with the Palestinian Policy Network. Unfortunately, he had a personal emergency, so he couldn't make it today. Um, but now I want to introduce Alice Rothschild. She's the co-founder and co-chairs American Jews for a Just Peace in Boston uh, and is on the coordina coordinating committee of Jewish Voices for Peace in Boston uh, in 2007. She published a book, which she has here for sale, I think, um, Broken Promises, Broken Dreams, Stories of Jewish and Palestinian Trauma and Resistance. And she is co-director of the film we're going to watch today, Voices Across the Divide. So welcome, Alice. Oh, oh, before we start, I want to make one other announcement. We have a poetry reading tonight at 7 at the Lamont Street Collective, which is on Lamont Street in DC. Um, free open mic about, um, we want to do human rights poetry sharing, so anybody's welcome to come and hang out. So um, thank you all for coming. I want to do a little introduction before we show this film. Um, what uh, Alyssa left out is that I was actually trained as an obstetrician gynecologist and was actually doing obstetrics and gynecology and until last November. So I always think it's a good thing to explain how I happened to come make a documentary on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, so I did start out uh, in a little New England town growing up as a nice Jewish girl, going to Hebrew school three days a week, had a bat mitzvah, made the family pilgrimage to Israel when I was 14, and it was just this magical, fantastical place. So I started out like many Jews in America start out. And um, then I'm also old enough to be a child of the 60s, so I was uh, more radicalized in college with the Vietnam War. Uh, went to medical school, discovered feminism and healthcare reform and colonialism and imperialism and all these things um, that you know I had not been exposed to as a kid. And um, so what I found as I grew up as an adult that I had this primordial love of Israel that came from my background. Um, and I had this sort of adult political analysis of the world and the two didn't actually go together very well. And I think like many of you on this campus find out that if you try to talk about this, everybody starts screaming at each other. So there's a really good reason never ever to bring it up. Uh, but that didn't seem like such a good strategy. So in uh, 1997, I started working with a group of other sort of similarly agonized Jews and we started a dialogue group with Palestinians and other Arabs and lefty Israelis. And we started really educating ourselves about the history that we had never been exposed to. And um, we were very excited by all the stuff we were learning and it began to, like the puzzle began to fit together. So we started doing public events and we found that we were very quickly blacklisted in our community. It was very hard to get booked to do anything. Um, so a bunch of us were trying to you know, strategize on what to do next and we realized that we were a bunch of physicians and uh, so we decided to organize a health and human rights delegation to Israel, the West Bank, once we got into Gaza. So since 2003, I've been co-organizing these delegations every year and going on almost all of them. And it's an attempt to work in solidarity with people who refuse to be enemies, um, to document uh, the facts on the ground, uh, to really understand what does it mean to be an Israeli? What does it mean to live under occupation? You know, all the things that you don't learn listening to our mainstream media. 
And then, um, as was mentioned, in 2007, and a second edition came out in 2010, I wrote a book called Broken Promises, Broken Dreams. And it's actually stories of Jewish and Palestinian trauma and resilience, not resistance. It's so interesting people switch that. And uh, so I used that book as a way to get out in the world and to do a lot of speaking, uh, book touring. And I noticed that whenever there were Palestinians in the audience, they tended to interrupt me because they had a very strong desire to tell their story, their family story, because my book is a book of stories of the people who educated me and my personal journey. And I thought, this is really wild. Why would a Palestinian want to tell a Jewish woman their family story? I mean, it's all these stories of trauma and immigration and dispossession, and you know, it's a very powerful story. So I thought, I should write a book about this. This is kind of interesting, you know? And it would be very personal and help people to understand the conflict. So um, I was in Ann Arbor and Detroit, and I was doing my book tours. And I, you know, there's a big Arab population there. So I said to my friends, find me some Palestinians that want to tell their story. I mean, I had no, you know, you don't, no um, criteria for included, being included in this project. And very quickly, this cameraman in San Francisco heard about this project, and he said, this should be a movie. And I'm like, I'm a gynecologist, go away, you know? Um, I don't know anything about making movies. So um, he convinced the people to pay his way, and he arrived the next day with all of his you know, equipment and his lights and his cameras and everything. And he started following me around. And these interviews were incredibly powerful. And I came back to Boston, and I was looking for a filmmaker friend who would want to make that movie, and I was going to go write my book. And all my filmmaker friends said, it's your film. And this went on for a while until I met a professor at Boston College who was a film professor who said, yeah, we could make this mo movie. So I thought, okay, why not? It's like writing a book. It's only visual. I had like no idea what I was getting myself into, which was probably a good thing. And um, I very quickly realized I needed to have a co-editor who actually knew how to make a movie and had all the equipment and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I found a wonderful uh, filmmaker in Philadelphia, Sharon Mullally. And so she and I embarked on this project. And I thought, oh, it's going to take a year. You know. So four and a half years later, many tens of thousands of dollars worth of work and donations and crowdsourcing and you know, an original score and a ton of other things. Um, the film came out last October at the Boston Palestine Film Festival and actually co-won the Audience Award, which was very unusual for a film by a Jewish woman to win an award in a Palestinian film festival. So I've been traveling with the film and it's actually been shown you know, all over the country. It's been shown in Tel Aviv at a film festival called Nakba and Return. Nakba is the Palestinian um, name for what happened in 48. It means catastrophe. I've shown it in refugee camps, uh, in the West Bank, in universities, in um, in, the, in uh, Jerusalem. So it's, it's had a very interesting wide exposure and it has Hebrew and Arabic subtitles, so all different kinds of audiences have seen it. Um, and then I was in uh, the region in for three weeks this June, just before the run-up to the war, and I was blogging very intensively, um, which is how I keep my sanity. And um, I came home and the next day this publisher called me and said, your blog should be a book and we gotta get this out right away. So last week, my second book came out, which is called On the Brink. Um, so this is then, um, I've now embarked on even more talking and trying to share my personal experiences. So these are all available for you guys if you want. Um, and the, the second book is an ebook, which is how I think people are tending to read books these days as well. So what I'd like to do is show the film and then we can have a Q&A and conversation about what this all brings up and your questions, okay?
my family's ancestry in Palestine goes to the 1500. Acres and acres of land. The French and the British agreed to annex Al-Basra. The end of the Ottoman Empire. Well, the Balfour Declaration, 1918. Living through the British mandate. They start fighting between Arab and Jew. British soldiers were killed. Going from one occupier to the next to the next. My sister had Palestine on her um, birth certificate. I had Jordan on my birth certificate, and the American Jew had Israel. In 48, there was a lot of fighting around our house. My eldest sister was shot. A bullet come over our heads. By 6 o'clock, we have to go. And we just left and they became a refugee. In we lived in a refugee camp. Refugee status. Classified as refugees. They were refugees. Considered present absentees. They're Palestinians, refugees. In the 1890s, millions of Jews fled anti-Semitism and persecution in Russia. They were encouraged by Zionist leaders to settle in Palestine, then mostly a provincial backwater of the Ottoman Empire. These 30,000 Russian Jews were the beginning of Zionist immigration, a movement that would change the face of the region, establishing a new nation for one people and sending another into exile. In 1915, battles began as the British fought the Turks for the region. In exchange for Arab support, the British promised to establish an independent Arab state. Two years later, British Zionists and politicians produced the Balfour Declaration, which promised the Jews a homeland in Palestine as well. Despite these agreements, at the end of the war, Britain and France divided the region and established Mandate Palestine under the control of the British Empire. Clashes continued between the British, the Arabs, and the Jews. Jewish immigration surged with the Nazi Holocaust. When the British ended the Mandate, the United Nations partitioned Palestine into two states, Arab and Jewish. There was a civil war. The Zionists won, and the state of Israel was born. The British withdrew, and neighboring Arab countries invaded, but Israeli forces prevailed. Jordan occupied East Jerusalem and the West Bank, and Egypt took control of Gaza. More than 700,000 Palestinian refugees were forced to leave Israeli-controlled territory, never to return. My name is Alice Rothschild, and I was born in 1948 in Boston, interestingly enough, the same year that the State of Israel was founded. My parents were first-generation Americans, and instilled in us the understanding that we Jews were a distinct and often endangered tribe. This Jewishness soon became grounded in our love of Israel. We were Americans, but we were also chosen people. And our responsibility was tikkun olam, to heal the world. My mother, Sylvia Rothschild, was a writer. And she wrote books about the Jewish immigrant experience in America. I think her most important book was Voices from the Holocaust, which told the stories of Holocaust survivors who came to the United States. I learned from my mother that stories keep our history and our culture alive. I also came to understand that the victors in history are often the authors as well. 
As I moved into college and medical school in my young adulthood, my need to heal the world took the form of political activism. And my relationship to Israel began to unravel. I realized that I had never actually met an Arab before. And I had grown up with only one side of a very complex historical narrative. Starting in the 1990s, I began an active search for the voices that I had never heard. Meeting and listening to dissenting Israelis, Palestinians, other Arabs in the United States. And then in 2003, I realized I had to go there and see for myself. And I started co-organizing delegations to Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, and meeting with Israelis and Palestinians in the region. I began to hear the enormous human commonalities between Arabs and Jews. And I also had to confront the trauma and the fear that pulses in my own Jewish DNA. Based on these experiences, I wrote a book, and then I began collecting stories of Palestinians who had come to the United States, much like my mother did 30 years ago with Jewish immigrants. I knew that May 14, 1948 was the glorious day that the State of Israel was founded. This was a victory over anti-Semitism and the Nazi Holocaust. For Palestinians, that day is called Al-Nakba, the catastrophe. The interviews with Palestinians that I will share with you in this film are the invisible voices that we have never heard. They are the other part of our story. That's my, the family of my great, uh, my grandparents, my mother's sisters, her old son. This is our house in Jerusalem, in Upper Bakha. This is my grandmother and my grandfather. They, live, they still have that house in Jerusalem, in old Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. We lived a wonderful life as Palestinians. I had friends of Jewish faith and Muslim faith, had Greeks, Armenians. We are from Ramallah, uh, you know, and we could trace really our grandfathers with their names uh, to, to the 1500. I was born in Haifa. I used to cross the Jordan River on horseback as a child. I, uh, my father would lift me up and I would pick grapes off the vine and oranges off the trees. It's about four bedrooms house and with a garden. I remember the flowers outside that house. It's beautiful. Oh, I love Java and I'm born over there. I'm swimming like a fish under water. We were wealthy. We had acres and acres of land. Grapes, uh, apples, plums, uh, cherries, mishmash, everything. Our roots from our family tree, I think, are uh, 1,090. 1,090. 1,000 years, 500 years. <laughs> My grandfather had two homes. You know, he was a businessman, he had lots of operations, and he had a bunch of different corporations. He used to be the first authorized dealer for the oil company, PP. Our house, many stories, uh, well, three and a half stories, that my father had started building in 1927. My father had a liquor store. <laughs> <laughs> City of Nablus is very conservative, and there were two liquor stores in town owned by two Christians. 
My mother tells us a lot of stories about growing up in the village, the difficulties, being a young woman, not entirely having a voice, at the same time being a very strong woman. So a lot of her stories are about the times when she stood up. When I first started this exploration, I was really focused on 1967 and the 67 war when Israel occupied the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. But the more I listened to these stories, the more I realized I had to go back to 1948, when the State of Israel was founded. What happened to Jewish Israelis, but what happened to Palestinians as well? I learned from the Israeli historian Benny Morris that in 1947, Jews accounted for one-third of the population of historic Palestine, but they only owned 7% of the land. That year, with the UN partition plan, the Jews were given 55% of the land. The port of Haifa has been the scene of one of the many battles fought in Palestine, and evidence of the clash between Arabs and Jews for possession of this particular city underlines the bitterness of the struggle throughout the country. By the end of the 1948 war, Israel controlled 78% of the land. 750,000 Palestinians were dispossessed, 13,000 were killed. The Israeli forces destroyed over 500 villages, making it impossible for the Palestinians to return home. This made it possible, though, to have housing for the thousands of desperate Jewish immigrants that were coming to Israel at the time. What was the cost of those policies? In Detroit, with a group of other activists, I helped organize a public event where Palestinians who had survived the 1948 Nakba experience had an opportunity to tell their story. It was a bit like a personal truth and reconciliation moment where a Jewish woman asks a Palestinian what happened, what was the trauma, what were the experiences, and how did they survive and how did they make their lives afterwards. I was born in 1942 in Jerusalem. And uh, the midwife was my aunt. She went to Jerusalem municipality and registered me as Julius Adib Khouri. The next day, somebody um, had an operation, military operation, and two British soldiers were killed. So they surrounded the whole area, and they have dogs with them. And uh, they prevented anybody from coming in or going out to certain area. My dad, he had a box with uh, some tobacco and lots of ammunition in it. So my mom was in bed, and she said, well, bring that box, put it next to me, and put a blanket on it and put the baby on it. She said, go through the magazines and find a picture of somebody British, anybody British, it doesn't matter whom. And he found King George. <laughs> and they stuck it above my head. And a few minutes later, of course, they came in and they broke in the door. They said, oh, new baby, what did you call him? And she said, what else? And I became George since. I am one of the eyewitnesses to the Nakba. Without uh, telling you my age, I was only 12 years old at the time, in 48. Um, I come from a village called Al-Qubab. It's one of those villages, the 400 and some, that in 1948 were totally demolished. I lived through the exodus from the village 
in late April, early May 1948. The village comprised about 3,000 inhabitants, uh, all farmland and orchards, situated on a gentle hill. And the trucks used to come from Jaffa, loaded with oranges. And as they go through the village, they would be just barely crawling because of the weight of the oranges. And they were slow enough. You climb up, you, you hold your hand uh, on, on the uh, gate and the other hand to take the orange. And that's all you can get is one orange, and that's it. In that year, in 1948, uh, we had a village uh, militia that bought their rifles from the British soldiers as they were leaving. This militia was formed by my eldest brother. I don't recall being scared at, at 12. You don't scare me. You're, you're excited. Uh, our house was a two-story house. Um, it didn't have glass windows. It had windows, and, and the second story especially. And we used to stick our heads out and look when, to hear where the, where the sound of the firing comes from, and we know where, where my brother is. I don't know how the word came to the village that we should be evacuated and move east out of the village to a safer ground. The first village we came to, and we were going to lay there until the 15th, because in the 15th, boy, the Palestinians will you go back to your, to, to your house, and um, everything is going to be just fine. Because, you, you know, the, People don't, don't just lose everything they have. Somebody comes and takes it over. Well, we learned something, that there was a, a different story uh, waiting, waiting for us to happen. My mother, who was a very strong person, could not take the thrust of what has happened to them. She was mentally not there. It went being quiet instead of the lively, steady person that she was before. And in 51, this was in 40, in 51, she died just while she was still in that state of not recognizing anything. So the Nakba meant losing your home, your country, your, your reference for, for the future. I was born in West Jerusalem in 1941. It happened when I'm younger, I remember it exactly, when in 1948, my father came home and he told my mother that there is a neighbor across the street from us was killed. And he said, by the evening, by six o'clock, we have to go. So he get the whole family in the taxi. I remember running, I said, just can I take my doll? I love to take this little doll with me. And he said, just run and get it. And my mom, she has a baby, 15 days old. So she grabbed her jewelry, wrapped it in the receiving blanket of the baby, and she throws us all in the car, and we left. So we went to Syria. And my father thought, we're coming back to our home and furniture and everything, so let's enjoy Syria. So he rented the house, and we lived in the house for a while. And things got worse. We, uh, my mom used all her jewelry for renting the homes or food and everything, and then the money is gone, and my father starts finding jobs and no jobs. So things get worse. We stayed two years in misery in Syria, so we said we have to go back. Before we left, my mom did two things. One thing I didn't see, 
And one thing, she took my pants down and she put a belt on me and she put safety pins in the belt. And later on, I knew it was money. She put money in every kid, with every kid. In case he get lost, maybe that money will save him. My mom, she don't have a money. She left everything over there. My father, he said, just 15 days, you're coming back to the same place. Nothing since that day, 61 years ago, nobody back to Joppa. We went away for two weeks. We, were th we thought, we left the Christmas tree. My mother locked up all the drawers she could, everything, and we just left. Went to my aunt with nothing. No money to speak of, nothing. Two weeks. So many of these refugees thought they'd be home in two weeks. Now, when I grew up, I learned that Arab leaders told the local Arab population to leave. But in researching this history, using Jewish and Arab and international sources, I learned that as early as the 1890s, Theodore Herzl and other Zionist leaders believed that the local Arab population would have to be removed to make way for the Jewish immigrants coming to Palestine. I also learned that the Arab leadership actually told people to stay and to defend their homes. I learned that Palestinians did flee their communities when they were invaded or attacked, or when they heard about massacres, like the Der Yassin massacre. At the same time, the Arab leadership was arrogant and misleading and ill-prepared for war. Except for the Arab League, they had done no preparations. They were ill-trained, ill-equipped. They hadn't done any intelligence work. And they were facing a tenacious and well-prepared enemy. My father, who was very active against the British mandate, um, he was one of the few men in his village who actually carried arms and spent most of his time in Jerusalem and in Der Yassin. My father did not know how to deal with losing the country. He was in the front lines. So he decided to leave. I think he couldn't live in the country, having lost the majority of the land. For my father, in 48, the Israeli forces come in to the town. Um, and the town, everybody in the town decides to flee. They fled to the neighboring city, which was Nazareth. It's uh, not even two miles away. Very quickly after Israel declared itself a, a state, they enacted legislation that said that if you even fled for a day, you were considered present absentees. They were present in the country, but they were absent from their parcel of land. So since 1948, they've been unable to get their land back. The state has denied all forms of compensation. And in addition, they've used this land to either house immigrants or to create factories or to create national parks, etc. And so the, the, the people who are actual citizens, as my parents are actual citizens, are unable to get any remedy or redress for land that was taken by the Israelis from them. As I interviewed Palestinians of different ages, I realized that the Nakba is not really over. I interviewed a woman named Hannah. She was born in Jaffa. 
She left as a young woman, she lost everything, and her family fled to Ramallah. And then I interviewed her daughter, Terry, who grew up in a fairly middle-class life in Ramallah until she experienced the 1967 war. The story of the Nakba was a story for my sisters and I uh, till 1967. It was my grandfather's story, it was my mother's story, it was a, a trauma. But, you know, when you're a child, you don't understand it. So in 1967, it stopped being a story. Israel struck Egypt, and it was war. It so let's place, you're 67, you're in Ramallah. I'm in Ramallah. You're how old? Uh, 10 years old. You're going to Catholic school. Catholic life school, is life is wonderful. There's nothing wrong. And all of a sudden, I would call it the transformation from childhood to hell. Our house became a shelter because we have a basement. So we have 30 neighbors sitting in a small place, listening to a small transistor radio. No electricity whatsoever. Everybody gathered their food, but the, the grown-up basically knew that we need to ration. And after three or four days, the ration became, you know, less and less. But, you know, I'm 10 years old. Nothing bothered me in here except you're sitting there and say, you look at the fear. After the sixth day, you hear soldiers in Arabic saying, war is over, you could come out and you could have a white flag. You go out there and it was Israeli armies and soldiers that spoke Arabic. You see the panic on the family and you know it was not an Arab army. June 5th was the beginning of the war, and that was a Monday. Wednesday was the day that Nablus was taken. It was very scary, because they would come at night in the tanks and in the um, uh, jeeps and all of that, and sirens. It'll be like 2 in the morning, they will get the sirens going until about 5 in the morning. It's around town, and then bullets. We had no shelters. There's nothing. And, and we had to find a place in the house that was the safest. So we sat all in one corridor. And then we had to have the lecture from my father about uh, what will happen if we separate, or, you know, because there was this fear about taking prisoners, raping women. But all of that dimmed compared to the idea of we are going to be kicked out. So go put whatever you need to take with you together because we're going to be kicked out. And I think that's the fear of the Palestinians. So I, I remember my father coming to us and basically handing us uh, the little money that we had and some jewelry. And we all agreed that if we separated and if we're kicked out, where we're going to meet. It's uh, Purim, 1965. And my father has a young little brother. And his brother was walking to school and was hit by a drunk driver and killed. The driver was Jewish. He was celebrating Purim. He'd been drinking a lot. He was never charged, not even with a minor traffic offense. And it sent my father into a tailspin because he realized that he was never going to be an equal in his homeland, and very quickly decided that he didn't want to live there anymore. And why was he never tried? 
that's just the way that the system was. And, it, you know, Alice, it's, it's, it's no different today. Recently, just in 2012, a number of children were run over by Israeli settlers. And they don't get so much as a traffic violation. And so I think he chose Canada because Canada seemed safe. Israel was putting what they call lessons in the neighborhood. One time at 4 o'clock in the morning, soldiers came in and took two of my cousins at age 14 and 13, and they were dragged out of their house, and for three days they were never seen. They said they were beaten, they were harassed, they were asked the same question over and over and over again. No charges whatsoever, and then come back. Then there is curfews. Your house is totally sealed. You can't go in, you can't go out. You are literally a prisoner in your own home. During a curfew in 1969, that's when they came in and broke into our house and beat my dad up in front of us. They start beating him with the butt of their guns and dragging him out. As they were dragging him out, we lived across from a convent, Catholic convent. Sister Pia looked out of the window and checked, and she said, well, why, do, you know, why are you doing this to him? What harm did he do to you? And they shot at him. And they kept beating him up um, till a sergeant came in from where, and, and till today, we say, bless that guy. And he told him to stop. What they were doing that day, they went from one house to another. And every male in that neighborhood, they beat. My mom and dad asked that we pray for these soldiers. They said, these are young kids. They don't know what they're doing. They're afraid. So why don't you pray for them? Israel did what it had learned in 1948. Go destroy the villages that you want to take, eliminate any possibility of life being there. And I think three, four days after that, we woke up and we found our backyard and the neighboring uh, yard full of people. Children and then donkeys and then babies and mothers and all of that. And I recall actually a woman gave birth to a child they were all from the town of Qalqilya. Israel had moved there, and they kicked the people out. And so they started moving them toward Nablus, which gave us the idea that next is going to be our turn. But there was a lot of commotion at the United Nations, and then they allowed them to go back. And, back and that's to Qalqilya. Back, back to Qalqilya and, and the neighboring villages. And that's when there was we had a sense of, OK, perhaps the world is not going to allow them to kick us out this time around. For centuries in Eastern Europe, Jews were victimized by anti-Semitism and pogroms, and this all culminated in the Nazi Holocaust. So for Jews, being victimized by an outside Christian culture, it's part of our core identity. We all feel like we all experienced the Holocaust and we all survived the Holocaust. For Palestinians, the Nakba, the dispossession and loss and trauma of 47, 48, is also a huge catastrophe. But for Palestinians, the problem is that this is never resolved. History has been continuous 
expelling and dispossession and living in refugee camps and the loss of land and lack of apology and compensation. For Palestinians, there has never been an opportunity to have closure on this trauma. The vast majority of the Palestinian 1948 fled their country or they were forced. And my family was one of them. We thought it's a question of a few weeks. My parents took two suitcases with them and uh, they thought it's going to be a short time. That they never understood that it would be forever. They passed away in a refugee camp in Lebanon called the Baya Camp. For me, growing up in Jordan, I felt it's a country that rejected me, that didn't want me. Um, the Palestinian cause in the Jordanian curriculum, it's like two pages. We spent 15 minutes on it. My education about my history and, and, and what's happened to my people only came afterwards, um, uh, when I came to this country. Well, Kuwait is a unique uh, itself because we were, we're I'm never, I was never a Kuwaiti citizen. I was always a Palestinian. As a Palestinian, you're limited, of course, to what you can or cannot do in Kuwait. For instance, once I finished high school, I knew that I couldn't go to the university. It was only for citizens. Because a lot of my friends and family and colleagues have immigrated to Canada. So we started going through the process. And August 2nd, 1990, we had an appointment to meet with the consulate in Kuwait. August 2nd, Saddam Hussein took over Kuwait so we can go to the embassy. All I remember is I was arguing with my grandfather about I need to still go to the embassy because I have, I've been accepted already to university. And he's like, you can't go because the troops are already in. All about 9 o'clock, the tanks were driving through the streets. I know I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere. We took all of our IDs and we actually dug a hole in the base of the house, put it underneath in case any of us lose control, then we could come back and at least know where to get our IDs. Because I think my grandfather said that's the first thing you want to make sure that it's protected, that you have an ID to do something. Up till then, they really didn't want to tell me anything about being Palestinian. His idea was just go to school and get a good college degree and just get moving. Don't worry about what happened to me, just worry about it. It's you. a burden. Yeah. yeah. He told us like how he lost one of his kids walking through the desert, and then someone else walking behind him picked him up and found him later. I think it's too painful for him to sit there and just tell us. Yeah. My parents were very worried about us. I mean, they've always been concerned about us. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we came to America, because my two brothers were roughed up. And my parents were family-focused. Um, they had their politics. They brought us with very strong sense of, of, of identity as Palestinian and as Arabs. We were all very politically active and very intellectual about things. After 67, my father wrote to his brother and said, I think the time has come. We got on a boat that was Greek-American, and we were almost in steerage. For a few days on the boat, nobody, none of the Greeks would speak to us. Nobody. Then one day, I came out of the room, and I was wearing the Jerusalem cross, the Byzantine cross, and suddenly I was embraced by everybody and they thought we were Jews. Because we got on the boat from Haifa and they did not want to talk to us. When they knew that I, we were not, because of the cross, it was okay. And that was the first experience that I had from the other side. And then now I'm going, oh, 
wow, what it, feel, what it feels like to be a Jew. I have had an acceptance from the University of Arizona to go to school there in Tucson. I remember leaving my youngest brother, Basil, with my grandparents, and my brother, my mom and dad, and I got in the car and drove to Iraq. I think my parents were thinking, if we all dead, at least one person from the family's yeah, alive. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, their mentality, because yeah. of what they've gone through. What I remember is just we went the next day to the embassy, and they took my paperwork, I showed them the acceptance for the university, and they gave me a visa. So, you know, I said goodbyes and took some pictures and left. But it was the first time that I've ever left my parents um, for a long trip, uh, not knowing uh, when, to, when I'm coming back, but knowing that I will. Um, and just, you know, seeing my mom's face, I'll never forget. So, but I'm sorry about this. I didn't realize it's going to be this emotional for me. Um, I flew from Jordan to New York City. And I arrived December, uh, no, October 31st, 1990. I did not know such a thing called Halloween night but I learned real quickly. <laughs> I actually thought everybody dressed like that all the time. <laughs> and I'm like freaking out, of course, <laughs> thinking, wow, this is really weird. <laughs> and um, if I have to fit in, I probably have to look like this. <laughs> you know, my parents, um, their experience is obviously what they saw the Israelis do for new immigrants. They would provide housing, the bed sheets, the towels pots and pans, a little bit, you know, a stipend. So my mother was expecting this welcome wagon when she arrived in Canada. She realized that there was no welcome wagon, which meant she had to get her own bed sheets and she had to buy her own towels and there were no pots and there were none of the things that, I mean, nobody told her that the way that you immigrate is you just go to another country and you're left with nothing. So. Did they find work or what They happened? found work within uh, 24 hours. My mother worked in a factory, um, in a pillow-making factory. My father worked as a welder. I had an incredible culture shock coming here. My father, although he's seen the world, he still was a vill village guy, and he, he still wanted to raise me as if we were in Betumar. So he would come to my basketball practices to make sure there were no boys, I was the only one who was not allowed to attend the graduation party because it was a mixed party. And, um, and then he sends me off to this unknown place. I was the only girl in, in a class of 40 of electrical engineers. And first year U.S. university was a joke for me. I mean, I had already taken all these classes. I knew calculus, I knew chemistry, I knew biology. So I was not only the only girl, I was also the one who aced everything. And all these guys were knocking on my door for help and homework, to pick on me. I don't know. It was hell. So I came back after my first year of college, and my grandfather was visiting us in, Betum, in, in Amman. And I decided to go back with him, to cross the bridge with him. My grandparents' house in Betumar is on top of a little hill, and it's a beautiful house. It used to be heaven for us. But in terms of crossing the border, at the time, it still wasn't easy. So you went through the whole cra crazy process, and including uh, they had you take off your shoes. But it's not take off your shoes, put them on a belt, and put them on. They took them somewhere to, um, to search them, 
And then, uh, and then there was a window where everybody would wait for their shoes and they would dump all the shoes out of that window and people would just attack because shoes get lost and they've been waiting for... And that scene is, in my opinion, one of the most humiliating. And that year, both my grandfather and I were sitting on a chair waiting till people cleared and he only could find one of his shoes. So he, he was barefoot going back to Betumar. The story is that they were in Colombia temporary until things calmed down or... And I, I think they believed that, you know, that um, 48 was a mistake, it was a crime against a whole nation and somebody was gonna do something eventually. I think 67 for them was a big blow to that dream. They were in Colombia when it happened. They had their Arab club. They would go to the club to learn the language, the music, the culture, the map. They had a huge map of the Arab world. Um, I didn't understand much, but I remember them telling us that we have, you know, piece of this land, like a part of the land was taken. In 73 was when they decided they needed to go back home. They started planning, and then in 77, he died in Colombia. So my mom took us and left. She buried him in his village, in the piece of land where he always thought he was gonna build a house. When my mother came from Colombia to Palestine, they told her that uh, her application for um, residency, for family re reunification was rejected. And then at some point, they actually took her and threw her out of the country, put her in a cab and sent her to Jordan. So she came back and hired an Israeli lawyer, Felicia Langer, whose parents uh, were in Germany during the Second World War. And Felicia took the case to the Supreme Court and put a halt on that, on the deportation order. And she took us all to court with her. <laughs> and uh, I think the judges were not happy. And they asked her, did you need to bring and she said, well, you know, out of respect, I left the two youngest outside. <laughs> I think she wanted them to see what 10 children means. They gave her a year. And during that year, Felicia organized um, a powerful campaign, both inside the country and abroad, which apparently worked. But then it would, was going to take 11 years until we actually got our IDs. We were on the boat for 15 days and landed in New York. And that's when I had a knot in my stomach, because I remembered I don't like America, because America had the Israelis, and, and, and America's my enemy, and America's after Vietnam, and America's doing all, all these things about American politics. And I suddenly uh, thought, what am I doing in America? But for the longest time, I did not make friends. You know, I'm an Arab. You Touch, you breathe on the person, and, 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 and your personal space is so close and so small. So I come here, and I'm talking with, with Americans here, and, and, and I'm so close, and they pull away. I touch them, and they don't like that. I breathe on them, and they're not too happy. And, and you know, initially, you would say, do I smell? And, and I know I brushed my teeth right. or whatever. And then I'll, finally, you don't want to be responsible for this, so it's blame. You don't understand it, so these people are cold. And I thought for a moment, ooh, wait a minute, stop. You can't do this thing. And, and I remember telling myself, America can live without you. You can't live without America. So what are you going to do with this? 
you ask me or you ask interviewees as, where do you feel home? <sighs> I feel that that is home, Ayn Karam is home. But as if there's no way of recapturing that. To me, is Jerusalem, home is Jerusalem and Palestine. I love this country very much, and I never deny the, everything we got from this country. Ten years ago, I bought my first house. I always rented because in my mind, I always felt like I'm going back. And this has been the first time that I feel like I belong here. The pleasant uh, side of my, my life uh, started when I got here. I have now, uh, I do have three, three children, five grandchildren. This is definitely my home. My heart is still where I was born, in Jerusalem, in Ramallah, in the old city. And I go through the town and I remember who lived there and who, who was next door and who was the next. And my tears run down. Oh, there's, I, I am totally homeless. When I go into our home in Jordan, I feel I'm safe. You know, this is my home. But being in the country of Jordan, they, they don't want us. One summer we were in Jordan and my son Giacomo, at the end of the summer, Giacomo felt anxious and he kept telling me, I wanna go home, I wanna go home. And I realized that home is no longer what, what I define home. Home is where my child thinks of home. And where would you consider home to be? Jerusalem. For me, Jerusalem is not a political question, as in an ideological issue. For me, Jerusalem is home. And nobody can convince me that me being denied home is justified. Whether families stayed in the occupied territories or emigrated to other countries, they all speak of the centrality of Palestine in their lives, of a need to be seen and heard as fellow human beings, of a commitment to activism and resistance to long-standing injustices. Coming to Nazareth for the first time, at an age where I could understand, was really shocking. In 1987, it was the start of the first Palestinian intifada, the first Palestinian uprising. I couldn't understand why young children were standing up to an army. Either they were incredibly brave or there was a problem, and it ends up being a combination of the two. When you see, you just can't unsee. So even if I, if I wasn't able to understand the language, which I wasn't, there was enough that just didn't make sense to me. My grandmother was then the person who started telling me that we had been internally displaced. I had no idea. She told me that the house that she lived in, which was built in the 50s, was not her home, and that she had a home just a few kilometers away. Or that they lived under military rule. I mean, these were all of the stories that my father and my mother they just didn't tell me. It completely changed my life. I originally wanted to be a physician, decided that I wanted to be a lawyer, which I am. I really felt um, that something could be done for Palestinians. When I was in college, the first intifada broke out, and uh, 
1987. And in February 88, a military order closed all educational institutions until further notice. The closure lasted for two years for schools, four years for universities. I became very active in what we called popular education. So every village, every neighborhood, every, you know, young people were called on to take the initiative. Um, in most of the places, women played an important role, although men were very active also. We didn't want to be stuck with generations of illiterate young kids. We didn't know how long that was going to last. And then it became fun. Then we realized we actually can teach Palestinian history. I became extremely active in articulating the Palestinian voice. I had been involved in giving presentations. I had to learn to dance so that we could go and dance Palestinian dances. I, had, I joined a group of uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. I remember getting engaged with universities there, go from mm -hmm. campus to campus to speak, organize events, bring other people. My brothers were in and out of jail during the Intifada. My mother was running from prison to prison looking for her sons and her daughter. People saw the soldiers take my brother, but then we don't know where they took him. So then you go to the military headquarters and they say, no, he's not here. That, we find out later, was used as a tactic of intimidation for the prisoner, where the argument is nobody knows where you are. We can kill you, and by the time they find out you're dead, it will be long, you're long gone. And one of the tactics that a lot of mothers did was just sit in the headquarters and say, I'm not moving, shoot me. I don't go, I need to know where my kid is. Oslo is signed in 1993. It was very powerful to me because it, 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 to me, signified there was going to be reconciliation. And it was just a matter of time before Palestinians were free. So I lived in this kind of fantasy land for, uh, for a couple of years, went back to Palestine in 1996, and that's when I began to realize that more checkpoints were going up and more settlements were going up. Palestinian towns and cities were now isolated, and life has become impossible to do just basic things like go from uh, Janine in the north to Hebron in the south. Before Oslo, people from Gaza could travel into Tel Aviv, they would live in Tel Aviv, they would live in Nazareth, they would live all throughout the country and work there. After Oslo, you needed a series of permits. Alongside the permit regime came a very severe checkpoint regime. Day laborers would queue at about two or three o'clock in the morning. The checkpoint opened up at six and it would take three to six hours to process all of Palestinian men. Many times they didn't get their pay. If there was closure, then they weren't picked up for the, the next day, which meant that they didn't get paid. But while Israel prides itself on these fantastic labor laws that it's got, these labor laws weren't, weren't applied to any of these Palestinians. In uh, the summer of 2000, I received a phone call saying, we'd like you to join the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. I arrived the first day of the second intifada. 
I had hope at the beginning, but then once I was in the negotiations, and I realized just how arrogant the Israelis were, that this was really an issue of power. That's when I realized that this whole process was useless. Today, when you hear Israelis talk about they want a peace agreement, when you take away some of the layers and start asking them questions, you realize that what they want is a surrender agreement, not a peace agreement. They want Palestinian land without the Palestinians. I have established a program through the Ramallah Federation called Project Hope, where I take young kids age 17 to 25, and we go to Palestine and we do clean up, fix up, paint up. And one of the things that I do is take them to a refugee camp so they would know the difference between what their family is and what a refugee camp is. I take the kids through the checkpoints and I take them without a checkpoint. If we want to accomplish a goal, we'll go through the regular apartheid road. But if we want them to learn, we'll take them through the checkpoint. We were going on a trip and we took a Palestinian boy with us who have all his proper paper, everything. He's 18 years old, and he said that will be his first time going to Jericho. We got there to Ram, and you know, the soldiers were going to return the kid. I mean, he's in the middle of nowhere, no taxi, no nothing. So I asked the soldier, I said, tell me why. He said, well, this is not my rule. I said, well, go tell me who is going to, you know, who gives the rule. The fear in this kid's face gave me determination that says, I don't care if I'm going to jail that day. So they called the captain. Respectfully, I was talking to him. I said, you tell me why this child, we have all his paper here, cannot go with us. And he said, I don't know, but you know, this is the rule. I said, well, no. Either you explain the whole rule for me, or I'm not going to just sit down. After 20 minutes, you know, I talked him into it. I shook his hand. You cannot go to the level of the occupier. You have to show that you are better than the occupier. Other, otherwise, this tragedy will become 100% worse than it is now. July of 2005, that's when the formalized boycott divestment sanctions movement begins. For such a young boycott movement, there have been a number of key successes. So I would encourage people to really push the boycott, boycotting Israeli goods, boycotting the goods of those companies that do business with, uh, with Israel. I'd be pushing for pensions to divest from Israel. I would push for the United States not to give so much money to Israel. Three billion dollars every year is going to Israel. You're left wondering, well, why can't that money just be put to use at home? I, I always like telling the story of our little niece in the pool, comes and tells her mother, this little boy has a gun. And the mother is probing and asking more questions. And then our niece, she was maybe three years old, says, no, I know he has a gun because he speaks Hebrew. How do you explain to a three-year-old that 
that the connection they're making is not organic, it's not normal, it's not natural. How do you explain that? When was the first time you met a Jew who was not an Israeli? <laughs> She's gonna love this. Uh, 1997, uh, Harvard Master's Year. We're taking a course called Education for Social and Political Change. So this young woman approaches me and says, hi, my name is Rhonda. And I'm like, hi. And she says, I'm Jewish. And I said, and? Like, I, I, I didn't understand. So she said, I've never met a Palestinian. And um, we are now very good friends. <laughs> this has been 12 years ago. She invited me for Passover. And she said, what do you know about Passover? And I said, curfew. When they have Passover, they put us under curfew. That's all I know. And they have the chance to be in a place where Passover means a beautiful thing to somebody. It was powerful. My first year as a graduate student, I met Dorit. Dorit was an Israeli woman, Jewish. She lived in Jerusalem, so I asked her, did you ever meet an Arab? And she said, no, I never talked to Arabs. I never talked to Palestinians. You, other than a vendor that I would buy a kake, you know, like the Palestinian bagel from. So it was a long journey for us. And Dorit is now my best friend. Just like I learned nothing about the Palestinian cause, I learned nothing about the Holocaust. And, you know, Dorit started telling me things uh, because she has people that are Holocaust survivors, etc. But I refused. You know, for me, that's not my problem. You know, this has nothing to do with Palestine, and you cannot justify, you know, destruction of 500 villages. You know, that that was and still is my attitude. Then I sort of softened and realized that I needed to learn that history because, you know, whether I like it or not, it's become part of my history. With my friend, I've added another dimension of learning her experience as an American Jewish woman who is not directly tied to the Holocaust, but for whom this has shaped her understanding of herself, her past and her future. My voice over time started softening because I was beginning to realize that to be effective, you can't just attack people all the time. You can't always say, you know, I'm the victim, I'm the victim, I'm the victim. In the last five years, six years, being part of Zaytuna, which is the fourth dialogue group that I think that I've been part of, I would talk about the suffering of the Jews, and I would talk about the Holocaust, but it was always with, but I didn't do that to you kind of thing. Being part of Zaytuna and, and having to look inward I realized that I was using it more as a strategy. If I show sympathy to your cause, you show sympathy to mine. So that I needed to work on internalizing it enough to not understand it, but to get it. I'm definitely optimistic. And the reason is I just, I feel that this can't go on for much longer. The boycott movement's picking up. People's eyes are beginning to open to what Israel's doing. So you think the things are gonna change? They are changing. Snail's pace, but they're changing. Just as Salma talked about realizing that the Holocaust had become part of her history, I've come to realize that the Nakba is part of mine. And now at a time when Israel has criminalized the teaching of Nakba history, we must learn, we must listen, and we must act. 
we must respect that Jews and Palestinians are equal human beings and that our futures are inextricably intertwined. Let us not be afraid. Excellent film. Oh, thank thank you, you so much. I'm left feeling like I always do when I really pay attention to this situation of feeling inept. I, I can't believe that another round of Gaza has just happened. It's like, like a mad dog. Every it just cycles over and over. And we still pay um, 3.1 billion per year to Israeli Defense Forces. A year ago, I was in West Bank, and tear gas canisters were fired at us as we were half a mile from the apartheid wall, which is still well within Palestine from the boundary, which is still well within Palestine from the 1948 line. Mm -hmm. What do we do, really? I mean, I just feel inept. So, so um, the what do we do question, I think, is an excellent question, obviously. And this is also a question within our entire US foreign policy. I mean, we just started bombing Syria. Um, you know, this is a place where we seem to be able to bomb countries into democracy and be utter failures over and over again. It's, you know, we have to look at all of our foreign policy. Um, I think in terms of focusing on this particular issue, there are a lot of different layers. Um, I think the first layer is that most Americans and most US Jews in particular have no understanding of Palestinian history. Um, and one of the things I tried to address in my film was to go through all the myths, like a land without a people, a people out of the land. It showed that people actually had lives, you know. Um, they were, their history is totally invisible. So the first thing we need to do is to educate our citizenry. And so um, the good news is that there are some you know, increasing numbers of fabulous books and films and websites. And, you know, there's so much more information available now than 25 years ago. So if people have any inkling of wanting to know, they can know. Um, but education is the first thing. Um, you know, we've all, I think, who have been activists have spent a lot of time, 
you know, writing to our president and our congressman and all that kind of stuff. And I think we have to keep doing that, although it's pretty useless to do it. Um, and so you have to ask, well, why is it so hopeless to try to impact our leadership? And I think there are a lot of layers to that. Um, if you look at the role that Israel plays for the U.S., it's had different roles over its 66-year history. Um, at the beginning, you know, after the um, Holocaust, the world was feeling very guilty. You know, countries didn't allow Jews to immigrate. I mean, there was a general sense of catastrophe. And given the whole nationalist history of Zionism and all the stuff that was going on, you know, Israel came into being for a lot of different reasons. But its immediate uh, role for the U.S. was that it was a bulwark against communism because Egypt was aligned with the, US, with the Soviet Union, and so this was our a Cold War thing. And then it became an important ally to have our foot in the Middle East for oil. And now it's our, quote, ally in the fight against, and I'll put this in big quotes, terrorism. So um, there's a way that Israel figures in foreign policy that I think could be argued to be very dysfunctional, but it's an important thing to remember. Um, and there's also a, a vast military industrial complex between the U.S. and Israel. So, you know, we give them $3 billion to buy our weaponry to test our weaponry and their soldiers train in our bases in the U.S. I mean, I was, uh, I was talking to a, a, a guy who was a med student who'd been in the um, um, IDF and he'd become a refuser and he said something about Dallas. And I was like, we're in Beersheba, what do you know about Dallas? And it turned out he'd done all his helicopter training in Dallas. So um, there's a huge amount of weaponry and money that makes the alliance very powerful. This all, no one sees this, but I think it's a very important force. And um, then you have the whole, what is called the Israel lobby, which is largely um, groups like APAC, which is, I always say similar to the NRA <laughs> in terms of uh, power and uh, funding and influence. And basically, it's a Jewish lobby that often stands to the right of the Israeli government. And um, APEC is, you know, for lobby, it's a fabulous lobby. It's very effective and it's very dangerous. So it takes every congressperson on these junkets to Israel so they get the right messaging and the right framing. Um, they monitor every congressperson's speech their votes, if you say anything critical of Israel or anything sympathetic of Palestinian something or other, then they fund your opponent in the next election. Um, so they kind of own Congress in a way that's really dangerous to democracy. Um, but an even bigger group is the Christian Zionists, you know, because Jews are like two to three percent of the population, but Christian Zionists are something like a third or some big number. And Christian Zionists are very, um, uh, much in favor of the settlement building project. Um, and if you go into some of the big settlements, I mean, the Jewish settlements, many of them are, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people. There are industrial parks, there are neighborhoods, there are schools, there are universities. And you see plaques thanking various Christian Zionist groups, Hagee, because they put in millions of dollars to fund the settlement. So that's a big, powerful group that sort of walks with the Israeli right. So from my point of view, it seems like the politicians, U.S., Israeli and Palestinian have basically failed on all accounts repeatedly. Um, and that if there's going to be movement for change, it has to come from international movements and from grassroots. And so for me, um, there's some very important uh, movements such as the boycott divestment sanction movement that I think is a glimmer of hope. Um, and the, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with this, 
in 2005, um, over 100 civil society organizations in the West Bank and Gaza called for a boycott, divestment, sanction of Israel. And so, for instance, what that would mean for boycott, um, I don't know if people have heard of SodaStream. It's a great product, very ecological. You can make your own seltzer and not have to buy plastic bottles. It's a fabulous idea, but the problem is, is that the manufacturer is in an illegal settlement in the West Bank. So there's a boycott movement to get people to be aware of where SodaStream is made and to get people to stop buying it. Now, you know, we're not going to take down SodaStream, but we're going to increase awareness about occupation and why that would be a product that you wouldn't want to buy. So. Um, I think the boycott movement has a tremendous amount of potential, and in Europe, um, it's much stronger than here. Um, you know, in there are countries like Norway that have taken their you know anything Israeli out of their pension plans. There are big industries that have lost billions of dollars of uh, work because of their association with um, supporting companies that make the occupation possible. And you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, it, you know, how could this possibly work? It couldn't possibly be that strong. And then I look and I see that the Israeli government is spending millions and millions of dollars to fight the BDS movement. So if it's such a puny movement, why are they spending so much time? <laughs> um, and the last time Netanyahu was at the UN, um, he mentioned Iran you know, X number of times as Israel's number one problem, but number two was BDS. And so it's like, huh, this must be a powerful thing if it's causing so much distress. And I urge people to, if you want to know more about the response, there's something called the Reut Institute, R-E-U-T, and they have um, put together, it's like a right-wing think tank in Israel, they've put together the, you know, the recipe to destroy BDS, and they're, you know, it's a very well-planned uh, political program to take out anyone who's working on BDS and to usurp it. And it's like, wow, if they're that worried, then it must be powerful. So for me, that's a very powerful thing. Um, and the other thing is that you, know, you can see in like the Presbyterian Church, I mean, in a lot of church movements, there's much more awareness about this. There's much more willingness to say, well, you know, we don't want our pension plans in Israeli companies or in companies that profit from the occupation. So the awareness level is very, very different. I mean, when I started working on this, we started a little grassroots group, and we spent a year debating whether we could have the word Palestine in our name, because it was so controversial, you know. Now you say Palestine, and no one, like, falls immediately on the floor, you know. Jimmy Carter said the word apartheid. Now you, you know, and got a lot of pushback for that. Now, you know, we can debate which kind of apartheid is it, but, you know, this kind of a, like, well, you know, there's one road for one people and one road for another, and there's one set of laws for one and another for another, and it kind of looks like some flavor of apartheid. You know, so the language is changing, um, but I think you know, there's a tremendous amount of work to do, but we're not powerless. Uh, we're just not. I actually believe in democracy, in case you guys didn't know. <laughs> uh, having suffered through the Holocaust uh, and then decades later do uh, this kind of uh, violence onto another group that had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Does that make the Jewish populace sit down and psychoanalyze why are we doing this? I mean, the, mm -hmm. at least perpetrating violence onto that same group that mm -hmm. perpetrated violence onto us would mm -hmm. be a bit, uh, you know, it would have some sort of a sense. But do, is this discussion at all brought up among Jews? So how, how could we yeah. have not stopped right. doing onto others what was done onto us? So I think that's a great question. Um, and first of all, you know, Jews are not monolithic, and there are all kinds of Jews. Um, 
And I think that if I had to sort of make some very broad sweeps, and uh, you know, with apologies to everybody who's not in the sweep, um, there are basically two kinds of thinking on this. Um, one kind of thinking is, and this is how I was brought up, you know, we are the victims, and we've been victims for centuries, and it culminated in the Holocaust, and never again for us, so we're gonna be you know, fierce, and we're not gonna let anyone push us around, and we have a right to do this because we've been so victimized. And that's sort of the attitude of a lot of Israeli uh, you know, political thinkers. Um, and the problem with that attitude is that it sort of gives you permission to do things that you should not have permission to do. Um, on the other hand, there are many Jews that are pretty horrified by what's going on um, and who feel that there's sort of a repetition compulsion, you know, parent abuse, parent beating, you know, abuse child beating their child kind of phenomenon going on. And there's actually a lot of psychiatric literature on this. So this conversation does happen within the Jewish community. Um, it's not in the mainstream Jewish community. It's more in the left progressive Jewish community. Um, and uh, one of the things that's very inspirational for me is that there are Israeli soldiers who have served in the IDF who it hits them what's going on and who have formed organizations like Breaking the Silence where they talk in, those, in that kind of framing like we must not do this to other people because it was, you know, of all people we should know better. So um, that discourse is definitely in the conversation, um, but not enough, I think. Um, and, and I'll tell you, a, 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 you know, it's like a really painful story. I have this friend who's a Palestinian from Mamala, and um, when he was about 15, there was, um, you know, a, a roundup of young men in Ramallah, and so his house was, you know, they came in and they took, you know, they were taking all males, like I think 13 to 50 or something. So he finds himself with his father and his brother in this big soccer field, and the soldiers wrote numbers on their arms to identify them. And he was so freaked out because it was, you know, the, the evocation of the Holocaust was just there, and it, it, it was it, stunning. And so you see these kinds of things, and it's like, this couldn't, how could this happen? So there are a lot of people that are talking that way and trying to figure it out and tr talking about, um, you know, traumatized people and what do they do to other people. I mean, it's not just this situation. This happens in a lot of, this happens all over the world, but it's particularly painful um, in this situation. Um, so I had a question for you. You hear a lot of talk about this. Um, a lot of people seem to think there's a two-state solution and that's the only solution. Um, mm -hmm. You've obviously done some research on this and whatnot. What do you think? Um, <laughs> what, what do you think is a feasible solution? And if it is the two-state, do you think that's actually? You mentioned you know there's progress even if it's really slow. Do you think it's actually feasible that it'll happen? Uh -huh. So um, the question is two-state, one-state, whatever. What's the possibilities? So um, this is where I am currently, and it's sort of based on listening and talking to a lot of um, Palestinians and Israeli activists and reading a lot. Um, I think that in 1993 with Oslo, which is when the two-state solution was sort of officially became something that people were working for, before that it was this very radical idea that you couldn't bring up anywhere without getting yelled at. Um, it may have been possible in 1993. I don't know, but it may have been possible. Um, there, are, there would be tremendous contradictions in it because 20% of Israelis are Palestinian and um, because since 1967 there's been this settlement, Jewish settlement growth into the West Bank. But maybe there was some way to figure it out that it could have happened. Um, if you look at what's the reality right now, um, there are 500,000 
Jew, Jewish Israelis living in the West Bank and the ever-expanding Jerusalem um, in settlements. Um, the uh, Israeli government has taken over the Jordan Valley. I actually have this, this is a, a graphic of what's going on, so I do encourage people to pick this up. Um, the uh, Israeli government has taken over the Jordan Valley as a closed military zone. So what's left for Palestinians is these little, you can call them enclaves, bantu stands, whatever you want, but disconnected bits of territory. And you know, anyone who thinks about building viable countries looks at this and is like, there's no viable Palestine left in those little smatterings. Um, and the other problem is that these little enclaves are then linked by, um, or bisected by bypass roads, which are roads that you have to have an Israeli license plate to drive on. And they were built to connect the Jewish settlements with each other and with Israel. Um, and then there's this whole system of checkpoints and permitting, which you know, limits people's ability to go anywhere. So in terms of what's happening on the ground to most people like me, it looks like there is already a one state. You know, um, it's not official, but the, technically that's what's going on. It's um, you know partly Israel proper or Israel 48 or whatever you want to call uh, the area um, on that side of the Green Line. Um, but Israel really controls the whole deal, and so if that's the case, then if you're working towards a just solution, it's an anti-apartheid struggle. And um, when I talk to people about, so what are we struggling for? You know, are we struggling for one side? I mean, the, there are a lot of people there that really don't like each other. You know, for them to live together would be a major challenge. Um, most activists that I talk to say, look, the struggle is about human rights. We don't know if it's going to be one state, two state, federation. You know, that, that we can't imagine that right now, although a lot of people thinking about this. The first thing is we have to get to human rights for all. That we're not negotiating between the victor and the surrendered victim. It has to be that these folks both have equal rights and they have equal, um, you know, that their trauma has to be respected and their needs have to be respected and that whatever goes forward has to have that as a foundation. So that's kind of where I am at the moment and, you know, I can't s foresee how it's going to work out but I think that that's a good way to start thinking about it. Yes? <laughs> can also ask about making the movie. It was very interesting. Yes. Your movie was excellent oh, and <laughs> fantastic. I'm really glad you, the, in answering the first question, you touched upon the main foreign policy uh, issue being mm -hmm. the, the main culprit and how Israel is being used. So ultimately, the people of this planet are really being used as, you know, we create proxy wars among mm -hmm. nations mm -hmm. and people mm -hmm. just so that the top, you know, few percent benefit. Uh, would that the reason I want people to psychoanalyze and realize that we're all brothers and sisters and to just really unite is because that is the only force that will overcome the system. What is your view in, in terms of just making this movie, of course, is the most powerful step you could take, but how do we approach the elite and the governments <laughs> that are so, they can't relate to us? Right, no, that's, that's the big, big question. Um, you know, I, I don't have any major words of wisdom besides you get up in the morning and you do what's morally right and you keep working on your issues that you uh, feel passionate about and you keep educating people and you keep writing letters to the editor and you just keep on doing what you're doing. I, you know, I, don't, I, I don't know how to um, end proxy wars and you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. 
or how to reach the elite. I, you know, I think that there, are, that there are a lot of conflicts we've seen, like in Northern Ireland, um, you know, France and Germany fought for 100 years, South Africa had apartheid. There are a lot of conflicts that felt hopeless and felt like the power elite was in charge and it was never going to change. And then there came a tipping point and it changed. It didn't always change enough for the better, but it changed. Um, so I'm working for the tipping point. That's how I see it, uh, you know, because we can't know when we're going to hit that. Um, and clearly, it's like um, in two weeks in Boston, there is a, the first national conference for the Open Hillel movement. Um, now, Hillel is a, a national um, organization in the United States with uh, groups on campuses to provide a, a center for Jewish life and kosher kitchen and all sorts of holidays and things like that. Um, but Hillel has also been um, very active in messaging on campuses about Israel. Um, and one of the things I'm very interested in is the muzzling of messaging on campuses about Israel. And Hillel's been a leader in that. So for instance, you know, I would never be invited to a Hillel event because I'm a supporter of the BDS movement. And that's absolutely non-kosher. You cannot, you can't even talk about it. So, um, you know, students being smart, educated people who want to talk about everything said, you know, that's not okay. We want to be able to talk about anything. We're not saying we support it or not. So we just, we want to be able to talk about anything we want to talk about. And there's now an Open Hillel movement um, that's spreading to different campuses and they're having a national convention in Boston, which I'm going to be at. And I find that really, really exciting because, you know, if the next generation is coming up and challenging their elders who have made some very clear cut lines about what you can do and not do, it's really, really good. So, you know, something like that gives me tremendous hope that the next generation is feeling differently than their grandparents. And if you look at polls, um, you know, Jews over 65 uh, totally support, except for me um, <laughs> and my friends, um, totally march with the Israeli government as a general rule. And as you go down in age, the allegiance to Israel decreases. And under, I think, 35, over half of Jews in America really don't care what happens to Israel or are supportive of Palestinian rights. And I think that that's a tremendously important little bit of information. And that sort of explains the franticness of, you know, Campus Watch, do you know what Campus Watch is, and Camera, am I getting, these are all organizations that monitor and muzzle. Um, and um, I, I think are very dangerous to democracy and to discourse. Um, and also, you know, about birthright. I mean, birthright is a, uh, no, birthright is a free trip to Israel that every Jewish um, student is offered from the age, I think, of 18 to 26. And it's a very, um, you know, kids love it. You know, go to a foreign country and it's all paid for and you get to play on the beach in Tel Aviv. And, you know, the, the kids, I, the students I know that have gone on, you know, say the goal is to, you know, sleep with an Israeli soldier. It's really fun, you know. I mean, this is sort of birthright is supposed to get you attached to Israel and want to go there. Um, and you know, it's a huge program, and the goal is to change the tide of young people not feeling like Israel is their home. And the interesting thing is that there are students that come back saying, you know, I want to move there, I want to make Aliyah, or, you know, it's my country or whatever. But the, a lot of students come back pretty cynical and alienated. I mean, my niece um, was on a birthright tour, and um, for her internship on the tour, she was on an army base, and she learned to shoot an automatic weapon, and I thought, no, it's just not the core of Judaism I was thinking of, you know. Um, and she came home, you know, like this was really nuts. You know, they had a tour guide who was a rabbi that carried a gun and said, you can't be in Israel without a gun. And, you know, that's just right-wing craziness as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, birthright has its pluses and minuses in terms of actually 
bending the minds of um, people who are invited on it. But that's another example of how um, sort of the mainstream to the right Jewish community is trying to shape the sort of the messaging on Israel. And the Israeli government is actually paying um, college students to do positive messaging on uh, social media in the US. And they also um, send uh, young people, young Israelis to the US to, um, they get hired by uh, temples and by organizations, they're called shaliach, um, and they're ambassadors of goodwill and they're supposed to help with the positive messaging for Israel. So clearly uh, the Israeli leadership is worried about how it's being seen in, in the world. Yes. I just have a question, um, and it, you know, in terms of you know, younger populations, uh, you can see some of the BDS, BDS activism on college campuses, mm -hmm. but I was wondering if you see a lack of a shift in sort of the elite institutions, including academic institutions. Um, so you know, is our government evolving the same way the population is? Uh, and I bring up acad academic institutions, because I know, uh, and his name is, kind of escaping me, so I hope I get it right. Steve Salada, yeah. whose you know, <coughs> job was re rescinded. Was unten from, untenured. Right, and now <laughs> unemployed because right. he left his job. And, um, and I know there was you know, some pushback from Max Blumenthal at some colleges mm -hmm. where there was some saying, well, um, if you're going to allow Max Blumenthal on, then you have to have like an Alan Dershowitz or someone to sort of balance. present the you other side. Exactly. Just. So I, I was just curious what your thoughts on in terms of institutional evolution. Well, I think what's happening that I see is that, you know, this academic guy was not the first one to be untenured. There have been a lot of academics who have either lost their jobs or, be, or been denied tenure or have tenure, you know, uh, PhD proposals denied because it was questioning Zionism or something. So you see a huge pushback on campuses, but you also see a pushback to the pushback. So it's not invisible anymore. Um, so it's the battle. I mean, it's a battle right now. Um, and it has to do with who's in power, who's doing the donations. You know, um, you know we had a big thing at Northeastern University where um, a Students for Justice in Palestine group, which was very active and sort of very out there, um, slid these uh, announcements in the dorm under kids' doors, that, under students' doors, that said uh, basically that they were being evicted. And it, and it said this is a mock eviction. Um, and the um, president of Northeastern University, who happens to be Lebanese, um, and very worried about you know being accused of being an anti-Semite and all the things that people worry about, um, threw the SJP out. And there was a big legal battle, and they got reinstated. So you see these battles happening all over the college campuses in the US. And I think it's good, because it's public. Um, it's people are just going quietly into the night and changing their <laughs> uh, field of academic <laughs> interest. But um, it definitely reflects who's paying the bills and who's in charge and who's afraid of being called an anti-Semite. Because there's this massive confusion between criticism of Israel, criticism of Zionism, and anti-Semitism. And those are three very different things. And then they can overlap in someone, but they are actually three different silos. And I think it's important to have those conversations intelligently, calmly, and not equate one with the other. But oh.
you will never be a tenured professor, right? right. So you know, he's saying as a non-tenured professor, he has to be careful. And I think that that's very dangerous. I mean, that's a form of McCarthyism. Um, but we have to say that and we have to expose it. And you know, I mean, it's completely understandable. I mean, I'm lucky I'm not trying to be a tenured professor so I can do whatever I want, you know, because no one can fire me. But um, I think this has to be, you know, publicized and people have to talk about the pressures that are put on them because it's it's very dangerous and and we've been through times before when people couldn't you know when the communists you can you know say things and it's just not um, part of our demo democratic heritage if we want to really be a good democracy is there anyone else and then I'll call you oh, you 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 have the mic yeah um, thank you for your film. I don't know if I really yeah, need this. Do I need it's this? being recorded. No. It's uh, being. Uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you for featuring so many women. Um, <laughs> I'm Barbara Ween, and I teach here in the International uh. Peace and Conflict Resolution Program. Um, and in the 25 years I've been working on this issue, I too have seen a ginormous sea change. Mm -hmm. I mean, the discourse and the awareness is growing so much. And it is largely little old ladies in tennis sneakers coming from the churches. Um, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the Quakers, the Mennonites, the mm -hmm. Church of the Brethren, and they are organizing their heads off in their congregations, mm -hmm. and they are tireless, and they're doing film screenings and delegations, and um, I have been with the Interfaith Peace Builders for quite a long time, and the number of delegations are growing, yeah. And the uh, number of people on the delegations yeah, are growing. They've hit a thousand delegates. Yes, yeah. we've hit a thousand um, uh, people going, but uh, they're only one of many, many delegations. Right. You went with Veterans for Peace, right? right. Um, so the number of delegations right. are growing. And I just wanted to let people be aware in the room that we are sending another flotilla to Gaza. And there are many of us funding that, organizing it, trying to break mm -hmm. the siege, trying to break the blockade. They haven't been allowed to have an open harbor in over 41 years. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, this is insane. And those of us who teach international relations and teach Michael Walzer, and we look at theories around sieges and blockades, like the siege of Leningrad and 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 you know Berlin and these other places, this is the the worst, most longest lasting uh, blockade uh, uh, of any in mm -hmm. history. Um, so we have to break that. We have to break that. And 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 people know the risks. They know that they might be killed and you know, fired on by the Israelis and rammed like they did. Mm -hmm. But we did get three boats through mm -hmm. in the early stages, and we got 28 Palestinian students out, and they're yeah, now right. attending universities mm -hmm. here. Um, they are targeting a lot of academics across the country, but I've seen huge campaigns, as you say, right. to push back. There's a big map now mm -hmm. of all the right. academics they've targeted right. in the there US. Right, there was a whole list of, yeah. And they've targeted two professors here at uh -huh. AU that haven't done any writings on Israel. So you, so you never know. So what's the criteria? Right. You never know. Uh, you could be completely silent on the subject, and they'll still uh, target you. But Are people supporting them, or do they get... Yes, they but uh, yes, oh yes, we've gone to them and said yeah. this is, you know, Michigana, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so um, yes, there's a lot of support mm -hmm. for the academics being targeted, um, but I know so many Jewish intellectuals who are tenured in universities who are speaking out mm -hmm. against the occupation, and they said it's militarism and the military occupation that is killing the soul of Israel. Mm -hmm. This is what yeah. has to right. end. Well, I mean... I 
I agree with what you're saying. And one of the things I often, when people are very ups you know, upset with what I'm saying, I mean, there are places that won't show this film because you know it's an anti-Semitic film. I mean, I've been accused of all sorts of things that ultimately this is not good for Israel and this is not good for Jews. Um, and you know, so if people don't really care about Palestinians, at least think about you know, the people that you care about. Um, and I think it's, it's very dangerous for everybody. And it's also a sort of fuel on the fire of the Middle East. So um, a lot of dictators and other people that are in charge in the Middle East use this uh, to fan the flames you know, of, of their population and also to then ignore the human rights violations that they're doing in their own countries. Um, and one of the things this speaks to is this um, sense that um, has been true throughout Israeli history is this sense of Jewish privilege. And that's something that I feel like uh, particularly Jews need to speak out against, um, that privileging Jews over everybody else and it is not an acceptable behavior and it's not good for us and it's not good for anyone who's suffering on the other side. So it has to be named and stated. Um, and you really see that like, it's like when I'm in Hebron for instance, which is a, a, a Palestinian city in the West Bank, there are about 800 very uh, sort of rabid, fascistic kind of Jewish settlers that are living in the middle of the city and they are just horrendous, I mean they are, um, firing at Palestinians, they've uh, you know painted death to Arabs over their stores. I mean, they're really bad actors, um, and they have this sense of privilege that they can do this, and they have a military defending them. And you're thinking, this is this has to stop. And so, I think what's been shown is that the Israelis are unable to stop it. So it's the internationals, it's the diaspora community, that has to say enough, not not in my name and we will not support this and that's part of our job. And you know, a lot of people used to say, well, you're in the diaspora, you have no right to criticize them. Like, so if I didn't live in Rwanda, I wouldn't have a right to criticize, you know, like that's not an acceptable way to shut people up. So again, we have to in some ways normalize this conflict and then we have to be true to um, our sense of human rights and justice. I yeah. would just say that it's really, it's a point for all Jews that all Jews are responsible for what Israel does in our name. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is why you know, one of the things that draws me to this conflict. So maybe yes, one one more question here. Yeah. My expertise is foreign policy, and so I keep bringing this back okay. to the elites. And I've studied this for thirty years, and I know that we, the people, are always being divided and conquered uh -huh. based on whatever reason they can find. And one of the most effective ways has been religion and race. So until human beings really realize that they have to go beyond their religious identity and their racial identity, mm -hmm. we will always be played with, there will always be conflict among us because it's easy to uh, create that diversion. So I ask the people who identify themselves as Jews, whether it's because they identify culturally or religiously to not do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I ask Muslims not to do that anymore because you're just saying, I'm not you, you are separate, I'm separate, whether superior, inferior, mm -hmm. whatever. This just should not be the way of introduction, way of identifying oneself anymore mm -hmm. because it just calls for conflict and mm -hmm. division. So, uh, you know, I think this is an interesting conflict to see how religion has been used. Because um, a lot of people feel, you know, that this is a conflict between Jews and Muslims or Jews and Christians and Muslims. And I think that if you look at the history of the conflict, this is a conflict about land. 
where religion has been used to mobilize people in the fight for land. And so it is a way that people get manipulated, but I think honestly, and used and you know fired up and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is that this is about land. So before you know the, uh, the Zionist movement really got going, you know Christians, Muslims, and Jews were living in Palestine quite peaceably. They all called themselves Palestinians. The Jews largely spoke Arabic or Yiddish, <laughs> if they'd come recently. And people coexisted because no one was claiming rights over someone else. And the problem started when Jewish Zionists said, I'm, my, I get the priority, it's mine, I'm taking it. And that's where the conflict really happened. So religion was used to divide people, and um, the Israelis also played the Christians versus off against the Muslims in terms of Palestinians, and they privileged the Christians over the Muslims, and then they screwed them both. And I mean, there's a whole long history of that. Um, and so you can see how religion is used to manipulate people and to, um, make this cause have some legitimacy that it actually doesn't have, um, but ultimately it is a, a conflict over land and power. So um, I think we're gonna stop there. Okay, so um, if you do want to look at any of these books, they're also available on websites, and the On the Brink book is um, an ebook, and it's an interesting book, not only because I wrote it and I think it's interesting, but um, I was blogging for three weeks in June before the war started. And so I happened to just get there like a day before the three boys were kidnapped from Hebron, by the way, and just watched how you make a recipe to create a war. And it was like as soon as it happened, we knew that it was happening because Netanyahu wanted to end the um, unity between Fatah and Hamas. And then we just watched how they do it. And you know, we just knew what was gonna happen, and it was very uh, sort of both creepy and powerful to see it unfold. And so I just blogged like a crazy woman to just document everything, and then um, it got published as a book. So it is a useful look at what's the messaging from above, you know, Israel has a right to defend itself, but what was actually going on on the ground, which was a totally different story that you know, most people don't know about. So thank you so much for inviting me, and take care. Okay, so um, Broken Promises is on Amazon, like every other book. Um, my film is uh, on the website. You order it from the website. And on the brink, you order from uh, Just World Books. So there are cards. If you just want to take a card, um, that's how they're, they're distributed three different ways. Um, and if anyone wants to be my film distributor, I'd be happy to hire them. So thank you, <laughs> so, thank you so much.